1: If you love the show, please leave us a review on iTunes, share The Real Food Reel with your friends and continue to spread The Real Food Love.
0: In episode 137 of The Real Food Reel, we are joined by Cliff Harvey, the first practitioner to bring low-carbohydrate nutrition to Australasia back in the 1990s. In today's episode, you will learn how to appropriate your carbohydrate intake in order to optimize your health and wellness. We discuss all things carbohydrate prescription, as well as ketosis, keto flu, exogenous ketones, and so much more. Let's get straight into it with Cliff Harvey. Hi, Cliff, and welcome to the show. Hi, Steve. Good to be with you. Really looking forward to chatting on this topic today. But before we do, could you give us a bit of context and your background information? Tell us what you've studied and then lead us up to what you're doing these days.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, I guess by trade, I'm, well, not, I guess I am a nutritionist by trade. And uh, I've been in the field for quite a while now. I got into nutrition back in the late 1990s. And I, I guess one of my claims to fame is that I was one of the first practitioners, if not you know the first practitioner, really in New Zealand and perhaps Australasia, to really start working with keto and, and low carb diets. You know, all, all that time back then. Um, so we, when I was it all started when I was at AUT University, where I'm actually back now as a doctoral candidate and researcher. Um, but I began to question a few of the things that we were being taught in nutrition. You know, know, as you will well know, we we learned basic things in the undergrad sciences about the roles of protein and carbohydrates and fats and whatnot and then it didn't seem to mesh what we were learning in the basic sciences with what we were then told to prescribe in terms of nutrition prescription. And so I started asking what were considered probably quite inconvenient questions and so um to cut a long story short, they said, well, you've, you've done enough of your course to pass, but don't come back because we can't really answer these questions that you've got about low carb and you know higher protein, higher fat diets and things. And so that sort of set me off on a, a path of investigating lower carb approaches. And what I've now developed is um, over the last couple of decades, an idea of what I call carb appropriate. So it's not low carb per se, it's low-carb where that fits the individual, or maybe it's more moderated-carb where that fits the individual, or in some cases, uh, even higher-carb if that fits the individual. And so that's really what my PhD research is focused on now, is to help people to individualize their diet with respect to to carbohydrate intake. And so now, predominantly, I work as a, an educator and researcher in the field of lower-carb and carb-appropriate nutrition.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I love that word, and I'd love for you to – I mean, I'm sure it's not – simple to summarize, but I I think we could talk about the bio-individuality of, you know, carbohydrate prescription. You've obviously done a PhD in this area. So what have been some of the highlights that you found in the research around the tolerance to carbohydrates and the requirements between different individuals?
1: Well, I think the exciting thing at the moment is Exactly, that there is very little research in that area. So, you know, when I got into nutrition, you know, way back when, two decades ago, really we were stuck somewhat because most of the research was almost geared towards proving the hypothesis that very high carb and very low fat was the way to go. And as we began to see that those hypotheses didn't actually work out in, in practice or in the research, then more research began to be done in initially high protein, lower carb. The then high fat lower carb and we began to see that at the very least We had been told to eat too much carbohydrate. So whether people are you know very low carb or low carb or whatever it happens to be what we can Conclude now is that people were told to eat too much carbohydrate in general And so now we're beginning to see that of course with the results of the pure study and the the Minnesota data That's come out all those types of things are basically showing us that that's the case But what we really don't have yet is any clear ideas about individualizing carb intake apart from trial and error to some degree. And what we do have is some very promising sort of potential as far as what we could look at in in someone to see whether they are more or less carb-tolerant. So one of the, the biggest areas obviously for that is someone's insulin sensitivity versus insulin resistance That can tell us a lot about obviously how they process and use carbohydrate And there's likely to be some really interesting genetic things that we see popping up in the next few years as well So a lot of people are I think jumping a little bit too far into that at the moment in terms of the application um, But man, it's, it's very exciting what's happening in the research
0: Yeah, I completely agree and I think You're right, there are people in this space in LCHF or keto that are definitely in front of the research and and starting to do some of that N equals one personalised approach, which I think is amazing. But obviously we have to keep coming back to what the research does show us. Um, So where are things at then? Like how how close do you think we are and, um, you know, in terms of being able to really prescribe a a more individual nutrition template?
1: I think we're getting a lot closer with what we can do clinically. And, um, you know, you, you mentioned the N equals one stuff that's out there. And a, a really good example of that, I'll just throw this in here. Uh, my master's research was focused on keto induction, um, you know, the keto flu and, and using medium chain triglycerides to help people to elicit ketosis more quickly. And one of the interesting things there was we looked for any sort of mention of carbohydrate withdrawal symptoms or carb withdrawal flu or keto flu, whatever you wanted to call it. You know, that description that we have of those symptoms of going into ketosis. And in the medical and scientific literature, there was a big fat zero. There's nothing there. In if you just search Google, you get 22,000 hits. Right. So you've got all these people out there in the mainstream. And, you know, we've we've all done this ourselves. I've been mucking around with keto diets or doing you know keto diets consistently since the 1990s. So I know what it's like to have, you know, symptoms of keto flu. I know what it's like to try and mitigate those and how to work with those clinically. But we've got very little that's actually been studied around that. And so it's really fascinating because a lot of times we're being led by our own experiences and the experience of other experiences of other practitioners or athletes or you know, just life hackers out there who are doing interesting things and then I think our challenge now as researchers is to take that and Start to do the provings around it, you know through the science So um, I think an interesting thing now is that the the n equals one proposition for any person is becoming much more accepted by Practitioners and scientists and what I mean by that is that I think for too long people have had a, a best practice idea And let's say that best practice idea is that you've got to eat more than 65% of your calories from carbohydrate, and you've got to minimize saturated fat, and that's supposed to be good for everybody. And of course, that's not going to be true, even if that were a true prescription for most people, which of course it's not. Even if it were, there would be significant outliers of people who don't benefit from that. And so I think where we're coming, which is really cool, is that we will begin to see that best practice guidelines that are based on real evidence going to be there as our starting point but as practitioners we need to shift from those best practice guidelines very quickly for the individual because there's it's unlikely that there's any one person who is you know this supposed archetype of the normal human because let's face it none of us are really normal are we
0: no i completely agree and i think (laughs) that is so exciting with the research because obviously as you um indicated earlier the science was so focused on proving high carb low fat that of course that's you know basically nearly all we have until recent years um so obviously the awareness has grown significantly in the last sort of five years or so and even more in the last year which i'm sure you know you would be aware of more than most considering your time in the field Um, but yeah obviously then that allows for the science to look more so at you know, what we can actually find in in the research to support maybe what we're experiencing or what we're seeing in in a practice environment.
1: Yeah, and and I think one of the best outcomes for that is that we're beginning to see now people on either end of the spectrum. So you've got low-carb advocates and you've got high-carb advocates. We're beginning to see them getting together and discussing what the commonalities of nutrition are. And that's something that I've really pushed for, say, the last 15 or 20 years is to get people in a room And first of all, figure out where we agree. You know, we agree that we should eat more vegetables and berries and we should eat a predominantly natural, whole, unprocessed diet. You know, agree on those things first. And then we need to look at what the rest entails. And then we also need to go one step further and understand that some people are going to benefit from vastly different diets to others. And the reality is we, we're now beginning to see that a lot of that comes down to what I call ethnogenetics You know, it's basically someone's ethnicity and their underlying genetic factors that really predispose them to certain diets And we see that in the in the research that we have on for example hunter-gatherer populations their diets differed massively depending on where they were you know where they were because we co-evolved with our environment to become more adept at using certain things that are around us. So, of course, we're going to develop differently depending on what we've had access to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's lots of variables, which is really important to factor in. There's a few things I want to unpick with what we've covered so far. So, you know, firstly, um, not to neglect your 2016 release, the carb-appropriate diet. Um, So, obviously, that's more focused around um, the awareness of um low carbohydrate high carb. sorry low fat high carbohydrate dietary guidelines, but um you definitely go beyond that so can you give us some more information around what you cover in this book and you know who it's for and what we can expect
1: yeah so basically the the carbo appropriate diet was really it, it was really something that I felt was was needed out there because there was this big dichotomy particularly you know in Australia and New Zealand but around the world as well between high-carb, low-fat advocates and low-carb, high-fat advocates. And basically, I set the the scene there with the existing research that we have that, well, we can probably conclude now that we've been told to eat too much carbohydrate. That's a given. But then the challenge for people is, well, how low do I need to go? You know, where do I need to be within within the spectrum? And so what I do is I roll out... All of the research and the the various paradigms that people can be and whether it be a keto diet or a modified keto diet you know more similar to Atkins through to a low carb high protein diet or maybe even a more moderated carb diet and then outline a stepwise process where people can start down a process of beginning to restrict certain high carb foods and then figure out where they're at so for example you might start in the first couple of weeks purely by eliminating sugar so you eliminate sugar and added sugar foods and see where you're at. Check in about two weeks later, and if you're not getting the results that you desire, then you go up to the next level, which is to eliminate uh, gluten grains, and then see where you're at. So it's a way that people can be reflective, check in, see where they're at. And, you know, some people get fantastic results purely from eliminating sugar, others from eliminating sugar and grains. Others have to go way to the other end of the spectrum where they've pretty much eliminated all of those obligated obligate carbohydrates and that's when they get the best results so really it was a way for people to start going through a process that was fairly easy that had clear and simple guidelines in order for them to be able to find their own level of carb intake
0: yeah i love that i think that's fantastic in terms of obviously the the ability to be in touch with your body and work out what you need. And obviously that reverse engineering of the plate or of the nutrition template is a really great way for people to appreciate how different they feel when they make these changes. And you know, it prevents them from having to go into that deep end ketosis if they don't need to. I mean, again, you would know more than most. There's a lot of negative criticism around keto being Atkins, which is obviously a big fallacy and one we need to definitely yeah. break down. Um, but, you know, I don't want anyone being keto and having to count their non-starchy vegetables. You know, I think that definitely takes things way too far. And if they don't need to be on the the that end of the spectrum, then they'll obviously learn that through your step-by-step process.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, when I spoke at Low Carb Down Under with, you know, Gary Fickey and Wilson, Simon Thornley, Grant Schofield, basically the whole bunch of us who are the sort of people in this field in Australasia, I guess. It was interesting because I outlined this stepwise process and Simon Thornley made a good point. He said, well, can you start at the other end? And I said, of course you can. That's what I say in the book as well, is that you can start at either end. You can either, if you're more of an extremist, go to the extreme end first, sure. But then understand that you can step back if required, because maybe you'll get better results with a slightly more moderated plan. Or the other interesting thing is, I think a lot of people nowadays think that they need to find the perfect diet. So they're trying to find the perfect diet that works for them brilliantly, and it's going to work from now until whenever. But that's not reality, because think about it this way. A lot of us have got ourselves to a state where maybe we don't tolerate carbs so well now. One of the reasons outside of the ethnogenetic stuff is that maybe we've overeaten sugar and processed and refined carbs for a long time and maybe we've been too sedentary and all those types of things that have helped to build a higher level of insulin resistance in the body now as we do the right things let's say we reduce our carbohydrate we eat more vegetables we get moving again what's likely to happen we improve our insulin sensitivity and what do we see quite firmly in the literature now the more insulin sensitive you are the better you tolerate carbohydrates and in fact, the better results you get from carbohydrates. So that's why we don't just go through a process of carb restriction to find where we should be. We can go through a process to find where we should be now, but that might also shift. So we might be able to, let's say we're on keto, at some point we might find that we get great results from reintroducing some sweet potato and some yams. You know, So it gives people a, a way to sort of flow through and find where they need to be in the future as well, not just today.
0: Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there because obviously with that carbohydrate restriction, you can reverse the underlying insulin resistance. So that's a really good thing to do, um, especially for the people that aren't aware of the fact that, that they are sitting somewhere on that spectrum of insulin resistance and obviously that they are intolerant to carbohydrates to a degree. Um, but it's amazing when they realize that they can obviously reverse a lot of that and evolve the diet, which is really important long term because, you know, nothing is static, of course.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and you know, that's that's a, a, an area that there has actually been quite a lot of research done. And a lot of people don't realize that is that we can look at studies by... Uh, randomized controlled trials by Peterson colleagues, Ebeling and colleagues, Cornier and colleagues, Gardner and colleagues, which all basically show the exact same thing, which is that insulin-sensitive people actually get better results for weight loss from a high-carb, low-fat diet, surprisingly, whereas insulin-resistant people, the opposite is true. So they get the best results and much better results from having a high-fat, low-carb diet. So that in itself sort of encapsulates the idea that there are factors that will predispose us to to certain types of diet, and one diet does not fit everybody.
0: Yeah, amazing. And then with the the insulin resistant people, like we look to things like uh, Dr. Phil Maffetone's two week test, which is that carbohydrate intolerance test, where people's you know lives are completely revolutionised by identifying that the carb intolerance was a cause for a lot of their health problems or symptoms or manifestations and you know while it is um a relatively strict for one of a better word for two weeks it then has that similar protocol to um evolve the diet and work out where that you know that optimal place is that you can sit on the other side of that two weeks yeah nice so let's talk more now about the research that you've done around keto flu. Now, just in case um, some of our listeners aren't aware of exactly what that term means, I'll get you to start with that for me, please.
1: Yeah, so basically keto flu is, is sort of a, a set of symptoms that people experience when they first start a ketogenic diet. So when they're on a very low-carbohydrate ketogenic diet, in other words, a very low-carbohydrate Very high fat moderated protein diet for about three or four days typically uh, people are, are transitioning to be able to produce ketone body fuels so those cool alternate fuels we create in the liver that the brain and the central nervous system and most other tissue can use we're basically producing that or trying to produce that so that we don't have the same reliance on glucose for fuel And While that's transitioning uh, a couple of things can happen. We can be transient transiently under particularly our brain Uh, We also flush out more sodium water potassium from the body for those first few days And so people can experience, you know, a set of symptoms ranging from things like headaches to nausea to muscle cramps and weakness um, Even skin rashes all sorts of interesting things And so we know that that occurs, but there hasn't really been much in the field for How we can mitigate those symptoms and how we can shorten the time to induction appreciably Uh, Because there's obviously been a lot of research on using you know What we studied medium chain triglycerides to make a ketogenic diet easier in terms of not having to have quite so much fat And maybe allow a little bit more carbohydrate and protein, but no one had really looked at that for shortening the time to ketosis
0: Yeah, right. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. And obviously, you know, we call it the metabolic gray zone from a fueling point of view, obviously, when you're moving from that HCLF to LCHF, it's, you know, it's that gray zone where you're obviously, yeah, yeah, really low on that predominant fuel source and not yet able to access fat for fuel very well. Yeah. Nice. And so, what have you found in terms of MCTs, and um, how do they fast track that that keto flu? Well,
1: the, the most compelling result, and I think this is something that you know everyone who has tried them and who knows a bit about ketosis knows anyway, is that MCTs have a, a very profound effect on internal um, ketogenesis, that production of, of ketones. And so, we consistently saw, obviously, markedly higher levels of ketones throughout uh, a three-week trial. Uh, there was a slight effect, but it was probably underpowered. So we didn't see a, a statistically significant effect on time to ketosis, but there did seem to be a trend towards that. So we would sort of conclude that uh, we need to do a bit more research on that. But I would say that typically people are entering ketosis uh, based on my clinical experience and this this trial we did about a day earlier when they're taking MCTs um, in terms of, you know, hitting that Level of 0.5 millimoles or greater, which we'd consider nutritional ketosis. So they're entering ketosis that little bit more quickly. Um, we seem to observe pretty positive effects on symptoms of keto flu. Um, so there was definitely a mitigation of symptoms of keto, keto flu. And that's what we would expect if you've got higher blood ketone levels, and there seemed to be an effect on mood as well. Um, I'm probably sounding a little bit equivocal when I say this because I'm saying, you know, there seemed to be or there appeared to be. That's just because our, our initial study was quite small, and so we would have had to have fairly, in fact, very profound results to show statistical significance. So we were seeing statistically significant results for a few things like mood and um, symptoms of keto induction, but they weren't really that great in terms of the effect size but we'd expect that if we had a bigger study uh we might see much bigger effects as well so we just need to continue to push the barrel out and keep doing research so that we can continue to show these things
0: yeah amazing and you're very research like in the in your terminology but i appreciate that because <laughs> obviously it is of you know it is about where the research is at this point in time, but very positive results obviously. how did you select what m c t to use and how was it administered in this study?
1: uh we had a basically a large food supply company work with us, and so they uh, were able to supply us with a very high quality um MCT, which was a C8 mix C8 C10 fat Um, so that is Caprylic and capric acids. I I sometimes get mixed up between the three Um, But yeah caprylic and capric acids a C8 C10 fat that was basically just a a pure um, MCT that had been sourced by a major food supplier So we basically got that it wasn't a branded one at all Uh, We administered that at a dose of 30 mils. So two tablespoons Three times a day. So it was a pretty high dose And that was one of our confounding things actually was that a number of our participants in fact, if we looked at the symptoms that people Experienced in the MCT group the predominant symptoms were gastro symptoms And so we would probably relate that to the fact that we had a pretty high MCT dose so in future, if we did titrate that dose down, uh, we would uh, we would probably assume that we would see an improvement in outcomes with much fewer GI effects. You know, we did want to give a pretty good dose there. So we did go for what the researchers sort of indicated has been the highest tolerable dose because we really wanted to see a true effect, particularly because we had a small sample.
0: Yeah, I can appreciate that. But obviously 30 mils even on its own is quite a lot for some people, let alone three times a day. So that's obviously yeah. quite interesting because again that is quite variable. so it would almost be the luck of the drawers to the subjects, and obviously their individual tolerance of a dosage like oh. that.
1: yeah, you're you're dead right. and you know that that's one of those things again that because there hasn't been uh, there hasn't been a huge amount of research. well, there's basically been no research really for MCT diets of this type. Uh, or MCT application actually, I think we did the first study for MCT application to a classic ketogenic diet, because typically MCT keto diets are a lot lower in total fat load, right. Um, Most of the research as well is in populations with particular illnesses, particularly as you know, epilepsy. So taking it out of that sphere and applying these diets with healthy populations it really changes a lot of the context of what we're looking at, because sometimes in populations with particular conditions and illnesses, we're really looking for a strong outcome for particular things. And it's kind of like some of the side effects are like, okay, well, they experienced these side effects, but the net benefit was there, so that's great. Whereas with healthy populations who are looking to maybe not work with an illness per se, but they're just trying to boost their performance or boost their health or their vitality or whatever it happens to be. It's pretty important if they're experiencing pretty severe adverse effects. And so there needs to be, again, a lot more done in the space so that we can really tease that out because, as, as you've just said, the variability in MCT tolerance is massive. You know, I know some of my clients will tolerate zero. Some will tolerate one teaspoon um, you know, I can tolerate a tablespoon at a time, but any more than that, way too much for me.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? So 30 meals is obviously where the research is at the moment to elicit the what the therapeutic ketosis or the nutritional ketosis, sorry.
1: Well, a lot of the early research in epileptic populations, they were actually taking the, the majority of their calories from MCTs. And this is why you do see a, a fairly high prevalence, I think, of a lot of those gastro effects because that's what we'd expect if you're having that much MCT oil as well. And so you will also get quite a lot of dropouts because of that. So in terms of how much is actually required, I would say that people don't really know. You know, but clinically, I think that if people are adding in and what I've observed clinically is that when people are adding in MCTs to their diet, let's say MCTs to a keto diet, at a dose that is appropriate for them, it typically has a pretty big effect. You know, I know that even if I'm just taking a tablespoon of MCT in the morning, that's going to have a pretty big effect on whether I am able to achieve ketosis much more easily. So I think titrating that that, that dose to self is very important. It's very effective. But there's also another interesting tangent coming up where I think we need to stop being so obsessed with ketosis. You know, I think looking at just ketones in the blood is, is equally interesting. Because one thing I began to observe probably fifteen odd years ago when I first really started looking a lot more in my patients and clients at their blood ketone levels, I started noticing that, you know, most people who are following a standard diet, they're they're not really exhibiting much ketone at all, right? They're exhibiting about point one let's say point one millimoles of beta hydroxybutyrate most of the time. Or zero to zero point one, you know, maybe zero point two at most. But what I noticed with people starting to get into paleo and primal and other types of, you know, just eat real food type paradigms, they weren't on a ketogenic diets and they were still eating quite a lot of carbohydrate, but their blood ketone levels were still markedly higher. We're talking sort of as compared to 0.1, 0.2, sort of 0.2, 0.3, even 0.4, which is just unnutritional ketosis, but they're not trying to be in, in ketosis. So some people would say, well they're not in ketosis so they're not gonna get those benefits. I would say, hold on, that fuel is still in the blood and you can't tell me that 0.4 versus 0.5 is going to be markedly different necessarily. And so it's, it's interesting because what that shows to me is that st- they still have multiple fuel sources that they're using. So, that in some respects shows that they're becoming more metabolically flexible. And I think that's a really interesting place that we're coming to, and something that's uh, really interesting in terms of what we're looking at in ketones within diets, not just ketosis.
0: Yeah, and this is really exciting because obviously that dual dual fuel is the goal. Um, But then we look at the grams of carbohydrates that are required to get there and that's what differs so much for the individual. So we can remove that assumption that it needs to be the 20 or 25 grams of carbs a day, you know, and that black and white approach that maybe we've fallen into the trap of doing in the space
1: Exactly that that's something I actually talk about in my upcoming book It's sort of like a little add-on for the carb-appropriate diet called the keto appropriate diet and one thing I talk about within that is that the The idea of a, a certain amount of grams that you have to be under To me is not actually that effective a way to look at it for most people we're better off looking at percentages and that's where most of the research has been focused so Typically, if people aren't having a lot of MCTs or short-chain fats in their diet, they need to have typically over 75% of their calories from fat to reach ketosis. Uh, Let's say they're taking in a lot of MCTs and things, they typically need to have over 60% of their calories from fat. Now, what that means, though, is that if you have an extraordinary, and I've seen this in a lot of my endurance athletes, if they have an extraordinary output, so they have, let's say they have to take in, you know, 4,000-odd calories per day, that means that even on a classic ketogenic diet, about a 1,000 of those calories can come from protein and carbohydrate. That can equate to quite a lot in terms of grams. Now, I, I've also seen that as we begin to understand more and more about this with the advent of more people fasting and having you know limited feeding windows, maybe looking at carb backloading and things like that we're beginning to see just how variable individuals are in their ability to reach ketosis. And I'll tell you a little story, if it's okay. I I typically eat in a carb backloading sort of way, right? So I'll generally have, say, a big protein-fat-based breakfast, and then I won't eat much during the day at all, big protein-fat dinner, and then if I'm hungry afterwards, I go for it, and I typically eat a lot of carbohydrates, and that works really well for me. And even though I've done... You know strict ketogenic diets and all sorts of various diets over the years because I like to be a bit of an N N equals one and self experiment. I had never until recently measured my blood ketones doing That type of diet the way that I habitually eat so I did a week where I actually measured my blood ketones and tracked all my food and uh, what I found was that doing that and eating a lot of carbohydrate after dinner I'd wake up the next morning, measure my blood ketones, and they'd be about 0.2, 0.3, right? So not in ketosis. But over the day, that rapidly rise, and I'd be back up to sort of 0.7 by the afternoon. So in reality, I was actually spending most of the day in functional nutritional ketosis, and then dropping out at night, at night because I had all that carbohydrate. And so it it showed, and this was a lot of carbohydrate. We're talking, you know, maybe up to 200-odd grams of carbs per day and still flicking in and out of ketosis. Now, the, one of the funny things was that I, I published this up on my blog, I just you know, put it up there for a bit of fun, and a friend of mine in the States who is a colleague of um, Steve Finney and Jeff Ollock, who I'm sure you know, they're sort of the, the godfathers of low carb, uh, who I said sort of know tangentially through the industry uh, He sent it to them and said oh, this is what Cliff's doing at the moment and they both looked at it and said can't believe it I can't believe that that can actually occur where someone is eating that amount of carbohydrate and still the next day able to get into ketosis um, But I don't think that You know is undoable because number one I've seen it in myself But it also makes sense because there's actually a lot of fasting window there which obviously increases that ability to get into ketosis and to be fat adapted I've done ketogenic diets off and on for 20 years now. Uh, I'm pretty insulin sensitive, so that's going to help in terms of metabolic flexibility as well. So all those things lined up mean that, hey, I can probably do that. Whether someone else can is sort of up in the air, but what it shows is that there's this enormous variability, which is super interesting to begin to to look at and nail down and see you know what's going to happen.
0: Yeah, I think that's fascinating. And again, you know, I think – especially when we look in the athlete space and this is what I um, would be interested to get your personal experience on is obviously if an athlete is super active and let's say that they're lean and they've got great metabolic markers, you know, it's really tempting for someone with maybe an A type personality to dive in that deep end and try and do less than 50 or whatever it might be. And, you know, looking at those exact numbers, which, you know, less than 50 is the magic number that Vinnie and Volek speak about in all of their books and literature. Yeah. Um, but obviously, you know, that can be quite problematic for someone that's doing a lot of especially intensity-driven exercise. So what's been your experience there? And um, is this obviously then when you look at then percentage-based recommendations, which I agree with?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, the The percentage, I think, works really well in those cases. And I I think we also need to look there at whether the athlete is actually best off on a ketogenic diet or a low carb diet or or a moderated carb diet. Typically I'm I tend to be pretty simplistic about that. I I generally think that we will see the indicators of carb intolerance within the client and that will determine where they should be. So in other words, if if I have a actually I've got a really good case study here i work with two two fighters both muay thai fighters both at the very top of the game so they're both sort of world champ level muay thai fighters and in the same weight class one of them cannot get lean for his fights unless he's on a very low carb ketogenic diet basically he, he basically can't function with carbohydrates so he's on a very low carb diet and we used to add a little bit of carb back in just before his fight so that he would have that fuel for the longer bouts but one time he didn't follow his prescription and he didn't take the carbs in and he actually fought better. And so now he basically pre-fight will just be almost zero carb and will focus just on protein, fat, you know, very much ketogenic. Another one, same weight class, loves his carbs, eats his carbs. It's a very good diet, I've got to say that. So it's natural, whole and unprocessed, but it's quite carb heavy. The dude has endurance till the cows come home. He looks amazing. He's ripped to shreds. His bloods look fantastic. You know, there's no way that I'll tell him to not eat carbohydrate because everything's working well. So, you know, looking at the individual and being able to determine where they should be based on that is critically important.
0: Um, I was just going to ask what sort of percentage the second fighter was on.
1: Uh, probably, well, maybe not high compared to old guidelines, but certainly over 50% calories from carbohydrates. So we're talking sort of 50%, 60% calories from carbs.
0: So that that's fascinating because, you know, obviously it's very different when the refined carbohydrates and sugar have been removed. So that's obviously the first goal yeah. for everyone regardless. But, um, yeah, I find that fascinating because I, wa- I wonder how many people – are maybe assuming LCHF is a one-size-fits-all and then missing out on some benefits from experimenting with higher carbohydrates, but obviously with that GERF approach in mind.
1: Yeah, I think a lot are missing out. And I'm certainly not saying that, you know, most people should be higher carb because that's not the case. I think most people actually should be lower carb because that's, you know, that's consistent with what we know from particularly the ethnographic data. You know, you look at most... Populations really in a natural state. were probably eating 20 to 30 percent of their calories from carbs max So that's probably quite appropriate for us There are of course groups that eat much higher amounts and there are some groups like the Inuit who eat virtually nothing in terms of carbohydrate um, So I certainly think that more people rather than fewer should be lower carb, but I think maybe this is predominantly a keto thing a lot of people in the keto community get really scared of of carbs and i don't think they should be scared of them i think they should just realize that they are one of the, the nutrients that can be manipulated i also think that a lot of people in keto get really scared of protein and i think that can be limiting in the long term because i think while uh, you know a very strict ketogenic diet that has very low protein levels can work fantastically well for a while I think a lot of people do benefit at some point from bringing back in some protein as well and having maybe even a higher protein, low carb diet for a time at least. And that's something we've certainly seen with a lot of our Maori and Pacific population here. that go on keto, get great results, but it becomes very limited very quickly. And then they get much better results when they start to add back in more protein foods because then it's almost as if that allows them to hold that muscular body weight that they're so well developed to do you know
0: yeah that is interesting so obviously traditional LCHF always talks about being moderate protein so what kind of shift are you talking about what percentages are we looking at maybe that you would recommend starting with and then potentially evolving to or at least experimenting with
1: well I think for a lot of people if you sort of looked at a low-carb diet as being Maybe 60% calories from fat is a good sort of metric for a low carb diet That's possibly ketogenic if there's enough MCTs and short-chain fats in there But maybe it's not ketogenic either, but that doesn't necessarily matter if it was then say 60% calories from fat and 20 from protein 20 from carbs That's a a pretty good split, you know, and that's for a lot of populations particularly down this end of the world. That's probably very uh, appropriate You know ancestrally as well So that's probably a diet that has been eaten for a long, long time. Um, That sort of 20-odd, 25% protein also allows a significant amount that's probably more in line with what we see from the International Society of Sports Nutrition, for example, their recommendations for optimum protein to not just, you know, survive, obviously, but to perform at your best.
0: Great. Yeah, I agree. So 20%. And then how high do we go to experiment with um, if we were to then… Um, I guess, try to work out if higher protein did suit us better if we were trying to put our muscle or or at mm. least experiment with um, a slightly different version of that macronutrient split?
1: Yeah, so um, a, f- a friend of mine, actually, Eric Helms, who's a very good researcher, and he, he actually works with me at the Holistic Performance Institute, he has done a review of the literature with Alan Aragon and Peter Fitchin, who you may know of as well. And they concluded that uh, this is while dieting, but I can sort of think we can extrapolate this to muscle gain as well. The optimal range of protein for retaining muscle while dieting seems to be about 2.2 grams of protein per kilo lean body mass per day, up to about 3.1 grams. So, uh, you know, if we sort of round that off a little bit, it's it's probably around 2.5 to 3 grams of protein per kilo body weight per day maximum. And after that, we're probably not going to see a lot of benefits. So I think there's sort of a threshold where people can go to, and there's no point just, you know, continuing to slug back the protein shakes and knock back the 12-egg omelets and things past a point.
0: Yeah, cool. All right, that's great. <laughs> that's some good numbers for people to think about anyway, at least to, is to see if they do respond better on um, slightly higher than 20% anyway.
1: Yeah, and I typically sort of, uh, just for ease, I just sort of say I oh, will – there's probably no point going over three grams per kilo body weight per day. That's an, an easy metric for people to to remember.
0: Still a lot of protein. <laughs> it is. And uh,
1: interestingly, you know, uh, I think when people are trying to reach those, those performance th- ranges, you know, I, the performance range is about 1.4 grams per kilo body weight per day up to about 2.2 grams, not for optimal muscle, but for performance. I think when people work that out and then maybe just track the calories for a couple of days just to see where they're at, a lot of people are surprised that they don't consistently get enough protein to perform at their best if they were an athlete. But I quite often take the athletic metric and apply that to, to normal everyday life anyway, because in a natural situation, the, sh- the human animal is an athlete. You know What is athletics? But it's a, a proxy for what we used to do, which was run around and climb things and drag things and you know, all that kind of stuff. And this is something I consistently do. Every year or so, I spend maybe a week or two tracking my calories in, a, in an app, which I don't typically like doing, but I do it just to see where I'm at. And I often find that I've fallen off on the protein. And so I that's a call to action to just get that little bit extra in.
0: Yeah, I agree. And most people are pretty – resistant to tracking calories and logging their food but i'm a big believer that not every day but you know as a sort of a stock take per se it's really powerful to just identify where you're at because if you don't know where you're at then the manipulation or the changes you know you're not then going to be able to identify that
1: exactly and one other thing we've noticed and you may have noticed this as well steve a lot of people don't get enough potassium crazy you know you you track your calories for a few days and you realize that you're about a gram under what you should be getting and so that's another call to action that wow there's a few things that i know are you know high potassium foods that i can just chuck in and that changes the whole context of my diet really these are important things to see every now and then
0: yeah i agree so all of my clients that are listening that haven't filled out their online diary can you please go and do (laughs) your homework (laughs) cliff says (laughs) yeah Cool. Just a question, um, jumping back to this, your um, PhD research that we were discussing earlier. I wanted to know if you had any thoughts around trying MCT powder just to manipulate or to mitigate some of the um, GI issues.
1: Yeah, it, it's, a, it's one of those interesting things where I've been doing this for so long and I still haven't tried MCT powder. And so... I don't know from uh, personal experience, but certainly a lot of my colleagues, uh, you know, do use MCT powder and notice that it is much easier on the gut. I wonder though, sometimes if you if people actually dose it the same, I wonder if that would be the same as well, because quite often there are obviously the, you know, the powdering agents that are used there as well, and it's quite often not the same quantity, obviously. So if someone's taking a, a tablespoon of powder versus a tablespoon of oil. It could be quite different in terms of the actual MCTs they're taking in. So I, I do wonder, but um, I do certainly hear anecdotally that MCT powder is a heck of a lot easier on the gut.
0: Yeah, for sure. Maybe some research for the future.
1: Yeah, that'll be a good good comparison. Well, oh, there's, there's so much that we want to do. We've got basically a list of things that we want to start rolling out from, you know, researching and, more research into emcts research on you know exogenous ketones and research on different types of ketogenic diets there's all these interesting things that we want to do
0: never ending really but i did want to actually get your opinion on exogenous ketones so thank you for bringing that up um I'm, i'm not confident that everyone will be aware of what they are so just context again if you would first and then um maybe your personal experience to begin
1: Yeah, so exogenous ketones are, exogenous means from outside the body, so we're basically taking the ketones themselves that we would otherwise produce within the body, we're taking them as a supplement. So basically when we take an exogenous ketone that's taken up uh, into the, you know, it's basically absorbed directly and it, it directly raises blood ketone levels as compared to having to be in a state of ketosis where we've changed the way that our body metabolizes fats to produce those ketones so it's really an instant way to boost those blood ketone levels so a lot of people will say things like you know you're in ketosis in 30 minutes or you're in ketosis in 60 minutes things like that i don't use that terminology myself because i think that being in a state of ketosis metabolically is different but what you certainly have is ketonemia or ketones in the blood that are consistent with what you would have in a state of ketosis
0: yeah that's a really good clarification awesome And so how have you dabbled with exogenous ketones yourself?
1: Well, it's really, obviously, as as you well know, they've only really been around for, let's say, the last year or two. And so I've just been using them, you know, myself and clinically with with patients uh, in a very targeted way. I don't necessarily think that there's something that needs to be taken in high doses consistently each day, every day. The way I use them is very targeted. I think they're a tool. So I think... You know, similarly to MCTs, I think they're extremely effective for mitigating the symptoms of keto flu, and I think when used prudently, they won't uh, reduce people's ability to get into ketosis proper either. Uh, a lot of people are using them as you know that dual fueling aspect. So a lot of my athletes are using that as almost like a sports drink, but without the sugar, and so using interesting combinations too. Using Exogenous ketones with superstarch and MCTs, you know, to get that real dual or even triple fueling effect. Um, I'm having a lot of success with obviously neurodegenerative disorders in the clinic, um, TBI patients, who I work with quite a lot. I'm seeing profound effects with TBI patients from a combination of things actually, MCTs, exogenous ketones, and lion's mane, which is a medicinal mushroom that you may have heard about. And, um, myself, I pretty much use it because I exhaust my brain by (laughs) writing books and, you know, doing jujitsu and writing research papers and things like that. So I basically work all day, every day and I love it. Uh, but my brain does get a little bit fried. So I use it to, to really kick the brain up a gear.
0: Yeah, obviously. And just to clarify, TBI is traumatic brain injury for those that were falling behind. Um, (laughs) no, that's cool. That's cool. It's my job to make sure that we don't get too in front. Of our listeners um yeah really fascinating and early days obviously as you said um what are your thoughts on if we look back at that evolutionary approach you know ketones are basically usually present in the absence of carbohydrate yet we see some recommendations almost to smash the carbs take the exogenous ketone and basically like recreate this physiology that has never existed what are your thoughts on that what should the dietary recommendations be um when you're going to be taking exogenous ketones
1: you make a really good point and i think you know the the biggest application for ketones obviously is when people are on a Low-carb diet and so they can use it to bump up that fuel that they are otherwise creating or maybe they're not creating as well as they could You know one of the things that's interesting for example Is that if you have a an inflammatory disorder and you have raised levels of an inflammatory marker called tumor necrosis factor? Alpha that can inhibit ketogenesis, right? And so people with inflammatory disorders often struggle to get into ketosis in the initial Days, Um, so taking an exogenous ketone can really help with that because while their body is transitioning they're going to feel a heck of a lot better However, I think that there can still be a role for Those dual fuels, you know having some carbohydrate having some ketones Um, and that's basically because number one if we look at it in terms of outcomes if someone is taking ketones on top of a diet that includes carbohydrate and it makes them feel better and they perform better, and we don't see any adverse effect with respect to body composition or bloods, I would say, fine, you're know, you just using different fuels, great, go for it. And in that respect, I think it would be similar to maybe myself or people who are following paleo or primal who actually have higher than normal ketone levels anyway, even though they're eating carbohydrates. So it does actually exist in nature anyway. The other aspect of that is I think one of the ways I often look at food is as levers, right? We have levers up, levers down. So a good example of that is sugar, for a lot of people, acts like a lever up. They eat sugar, because they're eating sugar, they're not satiated, they want to eat more, they end up eating more you know, foods that are maybe not so good for them, and so they end up eating a lot more in general. Whereas sometimes with certain things, like MCTs are a great example, or exogenous ketones, they can act like a lever down. So even if people aren't changing their diet per se initially, by adding something in, sometimes that can have them lasting longer between meals, choosing smaller portions, maybe craving sugar less. And so it actually starts to kickstart them into cycles of better eating, which I think can be really useful. The other example though, of course, where people just start taking exogenous ketones, they're still eating a crap diet and they're not exercising. And in that case, it could just be adding extra fuel to the diet, right? So it could just lead to weight gain or as some people have written about, uh, Bill Lagarkos has written about this, there could be some really detrimental effects in terms of increased um, oxidation inflammation in the body. Even though ketones are anti-inflammatory, when we have that excess and overload of fuel, that can potentially cause negative effects like increased oxidation inflammation.
0: Yeah, fascinating. I mean that's a good way to look at it. I think in terms of assisting behavioral change, that's – like that's obviously really positive i guess my point was more and um you've clarified it, you're in agreement. is that when we sort of take the focus away from nutrient density like i think it can be a really lazy mm. way to approach things and you know obviously our number one goal is the quality of the food that we put in our mouth and i don't think that should be neglected if even if you know you could take the easy way out and supplement i still think that having an efficient metabolism and fueling your body really well. And the, the great byproduct of that is that you're metabolically efficient is, you know, far more important than, um, that external stimulant.
1: Yeah. You're, you're bang on. I mean, that's, that's the key. And that's why everything I've done, you know, in practice always starts with eat real food first. I mean, that's the key, right? I think anything that we do on top of that is, is the icing on the cake, so to speak that, uh, helps us to perform maybe that little bit better, or maybe it makes life that little bit easier. Maybe we're just looking to have increased levels of productivity, cognition, whatever it happens to be. But if the foundation's not there, then nothing else can make up for that. You know, we really need to have that foundation of good, natural, unprocessed food. And, you know, I I keep saying it, eat tons of vegetables. You know, That's, that's critically important.
0: Eat your greens, as we say. Yeah, and I think it is interesting, um, With like, you know, even just from a cost point of view, there may be a time when you decide that you're not going to spend the money on these supplements anymore. And then what happens? Like if you don't have the foundations, Mm -hmm. um, if you don't have a flexible metabolism, like you're going to be in trouble.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And if all you've got to rely on, as you sort of uh, uh, implied there, is if, if all you've got to rely on is the supplements, then yeah, the foundation's not there, it's going to be very difficult to comply in the long term. And that's the most important thing. You know, this is why I quite often say, and a lot of my colleagues sort of say the same thing now, that the best diet for you physiologically may not actually be the best diet for you because if you can't stick to it, there might be a diet that's nearly as good that you can stick to. So that's going to long-term give you better effects. And I think that's why now... Limiting feeding windows is becoming such a big movement in the nutrition industry. You know, because sometimes even though we have the focus on, you know, eat real food first and all those types of things, there can still be a tendency to get derailed. So when people limit the amount of time they actually spend feeding, that can sound really scientific when you say that. I limit the time you, you are feeding. Um, that can really control, help people to control much more effectively in a in a much easier way how much they're eating overall
0: yeah i mean i agree and we had um we've spoken with dr sachin panda who is one of the leading researchers in time restricted feeding and i think it's obviously again early days because most of it's in animal models um but it is interesting how quality becomes sort of less of an issue from a um you know weight management point of view when you restrict the window which again i think is a little bit of a dangerous message and one that you know yeah we have got to be mindful of to think about the other manifestations or manifestations, sorry, of what, um, you know, what quality does for health today and and certainly into the future. But it is good for, you know, long-term compliance because we don't want to do anything that's actually even diet-like. It needs to obviously be, as cliche as it sounds, lifestyle-driven. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) One or two final questions on on your thoughts on exogenous ketones. Um, Yeah. I don't believe there's any research here yet, but any thoughts on using ketones like every day, all the time, and, and how that might impact your metabolism?
1: Yeah, there's not a lot. Um, the, the only even tangential research we have really on that was a study done on Studied studied in, in, in rodents where high levels of ketones or high intake of ketones quite drastically suppress their own production of, of ketones. So we do expect that there is some sort of feedback loop, although we haven't really observed that clinically in humans, and that's probably just because the doses aren't, people aren't really getting up to those high doses that are likely to inhibit that, um, you know, markedly. In terms of other effects on Metabolism, we you know we, we really don't know. Uh, I think the biggest potential for effect on metabolism, full stop, is unlikely to be negative systemically. It's more likely to be negative that if people are overusing ketones, that it could well suppress their own production of of ketones. So I think that's something to be aware of, and that's why I'm I'm prudent with the application of ketones, and I I really like to look at them as a tool, not a you know, must-do, must-have everyday type supplement. I think a lot of people become very behaviorally um, compulsive about taking their ketones, whereas I sort of think, hey, you're getting some brain fog? Sure, whack back a ketone. You know, if you need some extra fuel for training, sure, do that. If you know that it's going to help you through the, through the next couple of days of keto flu, then then use it then. But I think we can be very targeted with how we take it.
0: Yeah, they're very tempting to take every day because they do, especially, as you said, with um – um that cognition side of things like i find them really helpful towards you know that latter half of the day when maybe you're still with clients or you're doing research or whatever it looks like so it is very tempting but i think until the research is there we do need to be mindful of their application i completely agree
1: yeah and don't get me wrong i'm, I'm a big fan of all sorts of nootropics I, I like to muck around with all sorts of things so.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and equals one is any excuse to be a human guinea pig when you work in this field i, I feel exactly exactly awesome so you've got a new book coming out you mentioned briefly um, earlier just tell us a little bit more about that and where our listeners can find more about you
1: yeah so the the next one is called the keto appropriate diet and it really is uh, something that leads on from the carbohydrate appropriate diet but it's specifically about ketogenic diets and hacks for ketosis basically so what I've gleaned from the research and clinical practice and my own experience over the last 20 years of, of using ketogenic diets, how you can get into ketosis more quickly, how you can enhance the effects of it, all those types of things. And also, if you're not on a ketogenic diet, how you can still ex- you know, express some of the benefits of having ketones in the blood without necessarily having to be on a strict keto diet. So that's what that is about. And your uh, listeners can find out a bit more about me at my website, which is cliffharvey.com
0: awesome i've really enjoyed our chat today cliff thank you for sharing your knowledge and i'll definitely get my hands on a copy of the keto appropriate diet and listeners please head to the show notes to find out more about cliff and hopefully we'll get you back on the show in the very near future
1: i'd love that that'd be great cheers